Jesus, thank you. That is the good news. You do love us. And your word tells us so. Over a thousand years of writing in three different languages, all telling us of you and your determination not only to be born in the manger, but to die on the cross to take on, Lord, the rebellion and the sin of people like me so that we could have mercy and forgiveness and be welcomed into your family instead. Thank you for loving us. Help us, Lord, in trust of that love. Listen and do anything you say. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke chapter 12, please. We've reached verse 13, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Here's a word, greed. Do you like it? Are you a greedy person? Greed is one of those shameful little sins. It's like bitterness in that way. Nobody, rarely will anyone admit to being bitter or greedy. People will admit, in fact, even celebrate sometimes that they're angry. I've heard, I know a few people who are proud of being lazy. Kind of a strange thing to be proud of, but there you are. But hardly anyone will say that they're greedy. And that's what Luke chapter 12, where we're going to begin to read, is all about. Jesus is a very public person at this point in his ministry. Crowds are following him. He's reached the point in his ministry where people are literally trampling each other, trying to get close enough to hear him. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the benefit of this little headset mic like I do. He's continually raising his voice and shouting so that the crowds can hear him. And in Luke chapter 12, he has to put up with something that sometimes people who are speaking in public do. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 says, someone in the crowd said to him, in other words, he got interrupted. Whatever Jesus is saying at this point, somebody had such an important need that they actually shouted Jesus down which that's happened to me. I've been teaching in public one way or another in a lot of different contexts for quite a few years now. That happens sometimes. It's never been my favorite for somebody to just interject, just jump in and offer their own opinion. Because what if they're terribly wrong? How do you gently say to that person, well, that's not quite true, and get things back on the road? It's a little awkward sometimes. But would it surprise you to hear that Jesus knew how to handle it? Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Yikes. That's a little awkward, isn't it? If you put yourself in that scenario, somebody in this family has died. Probably mom and dad are gone now. There's at least two siblings And somebody is so upset that whatever Jesus is saying, in the middle of his teaching, he says, hey, hey, will you please tell my brother to split the money? Mom wanted us both to have that. Awkward. And here's the backstory: Jesus is a rabbi. At least that's what he's esteemed as at this point in his culture. 
Rabbis then and now give guidance. They're trusted people. They're people who are supposed to be in touch with God. In other words, what this man is asking for is someone to represent him, someone to be his advocate. And it gets even more awkward in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Every once in a while, because I'm a pastor, people will try to get me to get me involved and become a referee over family fights over money. I love that this verse is in the Bible. Because I say to them, listen, if the Son of God himself, if the eternal, uncreated Son of God, born of a virgin who died on a cross for your sins and mine, who made everything for his own glory, if he didn't want to get involved in a fight over family's money, what makes you think that I, just one of his ordinary followers, want to get involved? And then it gets even more awkward. He said to, watch the pronouns, he said to them. Now, who's them? The crowd. Jesus has been teaching. People have been following him around, and in his style, he's been preaching on the go, teaching on the go. Someone has shouted him down and said, would you please tell my brother to split the inheritance with me? And Jesus very quickly gets himself out of it, says, I want nothing to do with that. I'm not your judge. I'm not your arbitrator. And then he turns to the whole crowd, and this is always the danger of interrupting the masterful teacher. He says, hey, while we're on the topic, let me tell you what matters most using this guy as a case study. Because he says, verse 15, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And another translation says, take care, be on guard against every kind of greed. What's greed? Greed is the excessive, unquenchable desire to always have more. More what? Well, more of whatever matters to you. Everybody likes money. Can we agree on that much? Yeah? You don't hate it, right? You're trying hard not to love it, but you certainly don't hate it, right? At best, your emotions are mixed about money, right? But a younger generation in America, maybe because of the economy they're inheriting, has kind of given up on ever having much money. And they're not greedy, they're not covetous, they're not deeply desirous and never satisfied with a desire for money. What they want are experiences, want travel, want experience, want pleasure. Don't care if I have to sleep in a box, I want to do stuff and see things. Jesus is very specific. He said, be on your guard against all kinds, every variety of greed, because it differs by the person, but every human heart is rooted in a desire for more. And if you don't believe that, just go over to the two-year-old's class right now. If you've got a two-year-old, please don't let your two-year-old see you, because that tends to disrupt things. But it, by the way, if you have children over there, they're being taught the Bible right now. They're being introduced to Jesus. They're being taught to love God. Pray for those people and thank them because it's like the Tower of Babel in there sometimes, okay? It is just 
open spiritual warfare with kids that are so endearingly cute, but you know if you're raising them, I don't need to tell you, this is no surprise to you, they are intrinsically, intensely self-centered. And the difference is, like you and me as grown-ups, if you're old enough to be in this room, we've learned to disguise it, to be more subtle about it. We say to people, be reasonable, be fair, and what we really feel inside is, gimme, it's mine. And Jesus knows that the reason this man has interrupted him and literally shouted him down over a family dispute over money, that's never changed. There's an American saying, where there's a will, there's a lawsuit. The reason this man has shouted him down is for greed. He has plans for that money. He's been like an actual, he's had the actuarial tables out maybe and figured out how much time dear old dad has left and how quickly dad's burning through the money and what I'm going to do if I ever get my hands on it. And now my ne'er-do-well older brother will not release, he will not honor our father's, our beloved father's last wishes. I mean, it's intense. Why else would you shout a powerful teacher down? And the answer he gets is, I want nothing to do with it. And to everybody, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Every kind of greed, another translation says, and here's why one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is beginning to deal with greed, and here are two hard truths from Jesus to help you guard against it. Jesus said, all of you have to guard against greed, and that's true for you, and that's true for me. And one of this is one of these messages where you might already be thinking to yourself, I wish my brother-in-law were here to hear this. Maybe you're thinking about passively, aggressively sending him the podcast later and saying, this will do you a great deal of good if you listen to it. That may be true, but don't think about them. Hear Jesus saying to the crowd, understand that the Holy Spirit inspired this of the many things that Jesus said and did. God himself decided this is one of the episodes in the life of Jesus that everyone would profit from. Why? Because everyone has to deal with greed because we very easily confuse the stuff we have and the experiences we enjoy with life itself. And Jesus says it's not. Your life is not your stuff. He's an iconic movie villain. I've never seen the whole movie. I've just seen it on rerun quite a few times. But he was such a big deal in the culture back in those days that his slogan became kind of a national motto for a few years. He was portrayed by Michael Douglas. The villain's name was Gordon Gecko. Do you remember what Gecko said? Regarding greed, greed is good. Jesus says, no, it's not. You have to guard against it. And the reason you're shouting me down and interrupting is because you have equated your life with your stuff. And then he goes on to tell them a story. Verse 16. And this is one of those times when Jesus is going to tell a parable where I can already tell this is going to be bad. Years ago, the 
Other pastors and I went to a conference designed for pastors. And those are a lot of fun, usually, if you're a pastor, to sit there for a while and let somebody else teach you is usually awesome. This time it was memorable. It wasn't awesome because this very large, strong man was lighting us up biblically, right? Got really, really, really quiet. And then he'd, boom, you know, and everybody's going, oh man, we're talking amongst ourselves. Like, that's good, and you should listen to that. And ouch, and that hurt. And you're scribbling notes furiously in your Bible. And he had one of these great styles where it goes slow and it builds and then bam, right? And we're all down for the count. And he started up again and the guy in front of me said, uh-oh, he working on something. And I thought, yeah, he is. And sure enough, about five minutes later, like no survivors from that particular point in the sermon. <laughs> this is what's happening with Jesus' parable. He's going to tell them a story about guarding against greed. And like all parables, it has a twist at the end. There's a shocking turn in the story. Now, it's so familiar and so famous that you already know the twist if you've read the Gospel of Luke. Can I invite you to try to listen to it as if for the first time so that you can take Jesus' point? Jesus has already told you you have to guard against every kind of excessive desire, every kind of greedy, covetous desire. And here's the parable to make the point. Verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And let's just go through it slowly. Is that good or bad? Good. Anything wrong with being rich? Absolutely not. Jesus' own ministry was supported by well-to-do people. This man is a farmer. He's a landowner. He has land, and verse 16 says, it's produced generously and plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Good or bad so far? Absolutely good. What's the point of farming? I know we're here in the suburbs. My wife recently took some junior hires out to a field trip, and one of them was crushed to find that burgers come from cows. <laughs> Literally, she was devastated. She's like, what? Some knucklehead kid said, man, that's a lot of in and out. Well, what does that mean? And then it was explained, and she was ruined, right? We're... She's getting counseling now to deal with the hard reality of the food chain. What's the point of farming? What's the farmer looking forward to? Harvest. And this harvest is so good, he's out of barns and silos. Awesome. That's the point. That's why you farm. Nobody farms to let the stuff rot in the fields because it can't be brought in and stored. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Now be thoughtful and honest. Is that good or bad? Isn't that what you're working on? 
Let's be honest. Aren't you trying to get enough stuff together so that someday you don't need an alarm clock? Or have that one manager that just... Isn't that, isn't that the whole point? He says to himself, you made it. You've got plenty. All the hard years, all the storms, all the crops washed away, all the fires, all the thieving, all the bad workers, all the storms, all the backaches, all the ruining of the farmer's back and shoulders because nobody gets through farming without a worn out body. It's all been worth it. And he says, honestly, to himself, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Boy, that sounds great to me. And here comes the plot twist. He said to himself, if you look very carefully, you have ample goods laid up for many years. But God said to him, fool. Wait, what? This man achieved the American dream. As I heard a rock star say in a concert once, I made it happen for myself. Well, who else? He took responsibility. He worked hard. He bought the land. He worked it. God bless. God sent the rain and the heat and the warmth at all the right time. The land produced generously. And now, after perhaps a long life of slaving, he has finally made it. And God interrupts him and says, fool. You've behaved like a fool. Why? Here's the question from God. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? Why did God call this man a fool? Because of the second truth that Jesus tells you to guard against greed. The first thing is, your life is not your stuff. You are more important than the money in your checking account or your travel blog, your experiences, your adventures. You're more than that. Life consists of more of that. But whatever stuff you have, here's a second truth, you won't have that stuff for long. Those things that you desire, whether it's money or experience, those things won't be yours for very long. God intervenes and calls this man a fool. And here's the reason. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And the answer is, he doesn't know. See, this is one of the brutal things, and occasionally I find myself in Jesus' exact position, talking to people who are deeply hurt, wounded, divided, families ruined, because someone with a great deal of money, or just enough money to make a little bit of a difference, has left it to them, and rather than be a blessing, it has torn them apart, because here's the point, once you're gone, you don't know what will happen with the things that you've prepared. It might be the worst thing that could ever happen to your family or they may respect your wishes and honor your godly plans and it may feed orphans and bring the gospel to victims. 
It may make a generational and eternal difference, or it might ruin your family. You don't know why, because your life is not your stuff, and the stuff you have in your hands, the experiences you enjoy in your memories, you won't have that stuff for long. And God says anyone who lives for those things alone is behaving foolishly. And boy, that's hard. Let's be honest about money. Wouldn't one a thousand bucks a month more, wouldn't that make a difference? Would you like that? A thousand bucks a month, just more, just what you already have plus a thousand. Let's do it after taxes since we're fantasizing, okay? A thousand after taxes. Wouldn't that be great? guy in the first service said, 2,000 would be better. <laughs> and thank God, I was looking this way so I could say with a clear conscience, sir, I don't know who you are, but it's you primarily I'm talking to about greed. <laughs> we're, we're making stuff up. I'm, it's make-believe money. I just gave you 1,000 make-believe dollars, and you said, I want double that. <laughs> but that's the human heart. Listen, if you don't account for yourself in this story, you're not really paying attention to Jesus because Jesus said to everybody, be on your guard against every kind of greed. And some of you who have been in church so long or been in so many different churches, you've already checked out of this sermon because you think you know where this is going. And you say, ah, here we go again. Another pastor with a slick hairdo who wants my money. Is there a little bit of that in your heart? It wouldn't be surprising if, it, if there were. A pastor friend of mine says the best people in the world are pastors and the worst people in the world are also pastors. He's right. May I point out to you we started this journey in the Gospel of Luke almost a year ago. What Jesus is going to say next, the last verse, because this parable is so important. He doesn't always do this. Many times he tells the parable and leaves the listener or the reader to wonder, what does that mean? And it's on purpose. He wants you to go off and ponder and find the meaning and apply it to your life. This time he spells it out. Why is he so severe? Why is he so sharp? Why does he risk, in fact, I'm sure, give offense to so many people, especially the poor sucker who said, would you please tell my brother to divide the inheritance? And that's a reasonable request. That's what dad wanted. And now he won't do it, and it's tearing us apart. Why does Jesus spell out the point of the parable? Because he knows how much greed keeps people away from God, and even after people decide to follow Jesus, he knows what a lifelong struggle, the continual desire to have more, what a grip it gets on people's hearts. Because Gecko was wrong, greed is not good, and in the 80s there was this stupid bumper sticker that said, I bet you know it, even though it hasn't been in common parlance for decades, he who dies with the most toys wins. What a stupid thing to say. He who dies with the most toys dies. The survivors fight over the toys. The toys don't go back in the box, you do, and your survivors and the people, the competitors, are left to fight over the toys that you get. And the toys don't last for long, and soon will be taken from the people who begin to enjoy them. That's life. 
And Jesus knows this so well as the author of life himself that he gives the point of the parable, and it's in verse 21. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And he turns back to the crowd and gives them the point. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus says, if you pile it up for yourself and you're not generous toward God, you're a fool. Ouch. A friend of mine, very dear friend, I don't have a better friend in the world. He's been a Christian since he was probably 17 years old. He's my age now. He's a Christian leader, but a few years ago, I think probably for the first time, he began to slowly and seriously read the Gospels, and he called me in some distress and said, I'm having trouble with Jesus, man. He's harsh. Yeah, he is. You just noticed? He's very harsh. Why is he harsh? He's harsh because people are entrapped, enslaved, bewildered, deceived by all kinds of things, and love sometimes requires a loud, clear voice. Not to harm and not to hurt, but to bless and to spare harm and hurt. This is one of those times. Jesus has been interrupted by a man whose family is apparently being torn apart over the desire for money, and he uses this poor soul as an example to all of us. And he says the trouble with this man is something you all need to pay attention to. Every single one of you need to pay attention to this. You need to guard against greed. You desire a great number of things in your life, but your life is more than those things, and you won't have those things for long. And here's a story. There was a man who hit it just right, and it all came together, and God blessed him in such a way that he literally ran out of storage space to amass his wealth, and he said, I'm going to redesign things so that I can enjoy it, and then God showed up and said, you're a fool. What was his foolishness? Storing it all up for himself and failing to be rich or generous toward God. And you've got to hear generous toward God and ask yourself, what in the world does that mean? Let's go through some basics before we're done. Could it possibly be that God needs money? What do you think? No. He has need of absolutely nothing. You can read that all over the Bible, actually. He says things like this, the silver and the gold, they're mine. Cattle on the hills, mine. It's all his. Your life is his. Every dime you've ever earned is his. And you'll say, hey, wait a second, wait a second. I've worked hard. Yes, you have. With the life he gave you. The intelligence, the talent, the drive, the opportunities, the mentors, the offers he's given you, they all come from him. You haven't done any of that. That rock star was wrong. I, did, I made it happen for myself. No, you didn't. You were using undeniably, that's why I listened to him, God-given talent, but it can be gone in a moment. Arthritis or dementia or a car crash. 
one of these mini knuckleheads that's running red lights in our city. It can all be over for you in an instant. This is one of the warnings that Moses gave Israel before they went into the promised land. He said to them, when you've built your houses and when you're prosperous, remember, it is the Lord your God who gave you the strength to acquire wealth. It's all from Him. And God says, with what I have given you, be generous toward me. It's not that he needs the money. It's this. God is a person. He's not an idea. He's not a concept. He is an actual person. He eternally exists, and he made all the other persons, including you. He made human beings to love him and to enjoy him forever. Sin got in the way, and as the prophet Isaiah said, we have all gone astray. Each one of us has been lost in our own individual way. And God, in His great love, came after His fallen, lost, sinful, rebellious, God-forgetting, God-ignoring creation. And He came for you, I've already told you, at the cost of His Son. As we make the turn toward Christmas now and leave the Gospel of Luke, we will begin to focus on the miracle of the birth of Jesus who for the love of redeeming people who had been willfully lost to God, became just like us, entered into our exact experience, was tempted, the Bible says, exactly as we are, so that He could be a suitable substitute for our own lives, and His humanity makes Him identify with us, and His deity makes His life worthy of covering every sin of every human being that could ever plead to him in repentance and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, please save me. That's the good news. That's what you'll hear from this pulpit every single time we gather. And that God who loves you in that way, in the reality of human experience that forgets God and does a stupid thing like equating money and experiences with the essence of life itself, says, be careful. Nothing you have is yours, and the things you have in your hands, your life is more precious and you won't have it for long. God is a person. And just like every person in your life, you know whether you're being generous toward Him. Let's be practical. Are you generous with every single person you know? Let's make it even simpler. Are you generous with money toward every person you know? Come on, folks, that's easy. It's not a trick question. Are you generous with your finances with every single person you know? No, of course not. You couldn't be. You'd be broke. So I'm broke anyway. Well, it'd be worse, okay? <laughs> you can't be generous toward everybody. What makes you generous toward a person? If your motives are good, love. That's what it's about. It's not that God wants your money. He doesn't need it. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, which He established through the price of the life of His own Son, to have you respond with everything that He's given you, whatever it is, talent and time and money, all of it, and say to Him in response, you've given me all of this, I am going to be generous towards you. 
You can't be generous with everyone, but you will be generous with the people you hold in high esteem. You will be generous with the people whom you love. You will be generous toward the people you want to honor and trust, and God wants to be, without exception, at the very top of your list. What does generosity look like? I'm going to be very practical. I think there's two, given this a lot of thought, I think there's two elements to generosity. The first is a matter of proportion. Put it to you like this. You hear tomorrow that Bill Gates sent a $20 check to Chalk Hospital. You impressed? Why? He didn't have to do it. Why aren't you impressed? He's got billions of dollars. 20 bucks, I mean, he can literally lose 20 bucks and never even know it. He made 20 bucks in interest by the time the mail got the check there. It's nothing. But what if your five-year-old niece saves up birthday money, saves up Christmas money, does little five-year-old chores, and one day comes with her little hands outstretched with $20 worth of coins and says, I want this to go to Children's Hospital. Are you impressed? You're moved. If, you're, if that's your child, you're moved to tears. Why? Because the proportion. She doesn't have anything. Where does this work out? Well, most people are far more generous with themselves and toward themselves than they ever thought about being with God. The man in the parable has made long plans for his life so that he can enjoy his life. Where does God come in? Not at all. God's nowhere in the picture. That's why some generous Christians, even though they don't have much, are already planning financially so that upon their death, at least some of their estate will go to the gospel, will go toward a church, will go toward missionaries. That's why some people who are barely making it, our church is very diverse. We have people right on the edge of homelessness. In fact, some who slide into it from time to time, and it's none of my business, and I don't look at anybody's dealings, but I can imagine there are also people in our congregation who are very, very wealthy. In terms of the world, they not in Bill Gates' class, but in terms of world history and even our coastal Orange County standard of life, some of us are doing quite well. Where will generosity come in with both of those people? The amounts will be very different, but the proportions will tell the story. People get hung up on tithing. Ah, see, here we go. These pastors, man. Here it comes. Listen, let's be plain and clear. In the Old Testament, tithing was way more than 10%. And for some of you, tithing will be an exceedingly generous, almost dangerous decision. For others, tithing is no big deal. I'll give you a very simple for instance. You live in Huntington Beach, California, and you're scraping by on $22,000 a year. And you tithe. And you give 2200 Does that sound generous to you? Exceedingly generous. And then, from those humble beginnings, God blesses, and now you control a lot of money. And your own personal income is $200,000. And you still tithe. Is it generous? Maybe. In other words, you can make so much money that merely tithing represents that your greater commitment is to increasing your lifestyle. 
And you can make so little money and be so close to the edge that even the little you give, even if it's well below the tithe, may represent a great God-trusting amount of generosity. What does God want? He doesn't want you just to move the decibel back. That's a great place to start for a lot of people or a great thing to aspire to for others. What does God want? He wants generosity. He wants to evaluate everything He's given you and be, as in the words of Jesus, be rich. Other translations, be generous toward Him. He'll know and you'll know as well. Here's what I think a Christian standard of giving is. You give, you are so generous toward God that you notice. If you're not noticing, it's not generosity. It may be more like the Ronald McDonald little bank they put outside the drive through window at McDonald's. Have you seen it? That collects millions of dollars, rarely through anyone's generosity. How do they do it? They just have so many restaurants, people drop in 50 cents every Every other person drops 25, 30 cents, it adds up. Nobody goes home saying, well, I'm going to miss that. Now, if they rolled up with a check and dropped $10,000 off a $30,000 income, that would be generous. What I'm telling you is, pay attention to the proportion. Here's how Paul spelled it out to an ancient church. 1 Corinthians 16, now about the collection for the Lord's people... Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. In other words, this is common practice. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Proportion matters. And if I could say something to those of you who are very young and haven't started... Don't wait. It's greed and covetousness to tell you that you'll get started when it gets a little bit easier. Let me tell you something as someone who could be a father to a lot of you. It doesn't get easier. You decide to take Jesus at, your word, at his word and you start being generous. Don't ever say when we hit this benchmark, when we get that benchmark, when we get this, then I will start being generous toward God because what you're going to find is that covetousness keeps moving the line because you'll eventually hit that benchmark but feel no real satisfaction. You'll be in, seri in, in a serious way like the guy who I gave a thousand believe dollars a month and he immediately wanted two thousand. That's great, just a little bit more. No, start right now. What I'm telling my kids, I have two boys that are working and doing old enough to begin to work. I am telling them without looking because I consider it, and I may be wrong, but that is between them and that is between you and your God. Give so that you notice. Give so that if you're looking at your account, it will be evident through your giving that God has a priority. If you will make God a priority and be generous toward Him, the figure itself, the actual number doesn't even matter. There's another component to generosity, and that's attitude. You see, sometimes people give out of obligation. They write the check, but they hate it. Anybody ever pay their tuition or their mortgage that way? Have you ever just delighted in taking the money over to the bank? Ever sent a thank you note to the electric company? So here you go, thank you. It's wonderful. We live in a miraculous time where night miraculously turns into day anytime we want. Our food is cold, our houses are heated. It's all great. Thank you so very much. Anybody ever done that? 
No, why? Because you're just paying a bill, and God wants more than bill paying. He wants generosity. Here's how Paul explained it to Corinthians, apparently about a year later, because they didn't follow instructions the first time. Listen. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, the more you're able to give, the greater effect it'll have. It's like farming. If you want a big harvest, you put out a lot of seed. Here's the liberty he gives them. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not under his he said, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So please, it's a human being just like every other Sunday telling you chapter by chapter what Jesus is saying. If I offend you, take me out of the equation. Because you won't answer to me. You'll answer for what Jesus told you. But he's saying it to me as well. And we will each give an account just like the man in the parable. Everyone, Paul said, give as he decides in his heart. Why his heart? Because it's private. It's personal. It's between that person and his God. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. If I can be very honest with you, that's how I began to give way back when I was in high school. I was reluctant because I thought, I barely make any money. I pay for my own gas. My truck, I had a wonderful 74 Chevy. And basically the way it worked, I had that job so I could pay for the gas to get there and back. That's, uh, I wasn't very good at economics. I was mainly working the job so that I could get to the job. And I thought to myself, if I start giving any part of this away, there, what about dating? ever get to eat out on my own? And in the beginning, it was reluctant. And my hand trembled a little bit when I first started giving. Paul says, don't make a matter of reluctance and don't make it a matter of compulsion. That somebody is guilting you and shaming you and pressuring you into this and then he gives the, then he gives the reason. It says at the end of that verse, for God loves a, do you know the rest of this? A cheerful giver because generosity requires cheerfulness. You will be generous when you give in proportion that shows that God is a priority and you will be generous when you are able to do that not under fear or obligation or feeling that God will be angry with you if you don't but you do it in such a glad-hearted way that you delight to give back to God from what He first gave you. That is the heart of Christian giving. And Paul told the Corinthians, you should excel in the grace of giving. In other words, you should get better at it. You should work at this until you are like your God is, generous. Look at the promise that Jesus made in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, here's the instructions. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. We need to go back to the first slide, please. But store up for yourselves, read it right there from the word but. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the issue where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Why does God want you to be generous toward him? Because he knows that invariably your heart follows your money. You know who doesn't worry when the stock market crashes? People who have no money in it. You know who doesn't worry when the car gets scratched? People who ride the bus. What's the point? If you have a financial stake in anything, your heart will be drawn to it. If you're renting and the sink blows up, uh time for the landlord to pay. If you own the house, it's your problem. God doesn't need your money. He's after your heart. He wants you to be generous. He wants you to be cheerful in giving because he's generous and he's cheerful in giving. How generous was God? He gave his son. How cheerful was he that Jesus deliberately went to meet his executioners? He's no victim. He knows from the time he begins his ministry and before that he is aimed straight at the cross for the sake of love. That is our Savior. That's why he says, if you will be generous toward me, you will live wisely. If you're stingy with God, if all you have to do for God to call you a fool is to be tight-fisted and stingy toward him. Martin Luther said it well. He said, I've held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. What can you trust God with? Everything. You can trust Him with your health, you can trust Him with your job, you can trust Him with your family and your marriage. Speaking of which, if I could be practical for a moment, for those of you who are married, if this topic of generosity is a point of contention or silence in your marriage, you've got a problem. Your disciples together, if you're both saved, you're both following Jesus, You should be working together to decide how are we as a couple, how are we as a family going to be generous together. If this is a point of silence where we don't talk about it, one person gives and is afraid the other person will find out. We have arguments about how much we're going to give. That means that there has to be growth on one side or the other or perhaps both. What God is after is to create in you His own generous heart. And you cannot possibly outgive him. My story is just one, but I can tell you from beginning to work on my own, where it was actually up to me and my parents didn't know what I was doing with all the fear and trepidation that I had back then and watching my wife do the same from the time we were dating, we have discovered together what countless Christians, some in desperate poverty could tell you in Mexico, God will not be outgiven. A generous God will not allow you to be generous toward him and be stingy in return to you. He already settled that when he gave you his son on the cross. So let's not live foolishly. Let's be generous toward the Lord. Let's pray. It's not the point of the sermon, but there are some of you who have heard the gospel so long and so often but you've postponed, you've fought off trusting Jesus with your own soul, turning to Him, giving Him your sin and your guilt and your shame, and saying, here, Jesus, save me. That's the beginning of His generosity. If you haven't done that, this is advanced stuff. This doesn't even apply to you yet. What matters most is that you have the certain security that Jesus is your Savior, and when God calls you to account, you will be safe and saved.
If you don't have that security, let me invite you to identify that right now and turn to him in prayer and say, Jesus, please save me. And for the rest of us, the great majority, I would suppose, are disciples. Let's live wisely. Let's be generous. Let's not ever behave in a way where God would intervene and say to us, child, you've acted like a fool. Lord, we give you this offering in gratitude for your own generosity. This is no effort to repay you. And I pray, God, that as we sing this final song and we give, whether we give here or later alone, Lord, through the mail or however we choose to do it, that you would change and shape every heart beginning with mine and make us ever more generous so that you would be able to look down from heaven and say, there is someone who understands me and loves me and has made me and my kingdom a priority. Receive this, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.